Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or, last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. So far in this series, we've been a little parochial in our focus on European and North American democracies. So enough for the moment on Brexit and Trump. This week, we shift the conversation to Asia, where the majority of the world's wealth and population lies. Indeed, the future is Asian, at least according to our guest this week, the Singapore-based geostrategist Parag Khanna. This is, in fact, the name of Khanna's new book. And when I interviewed him at last week's DLD conference in Munich, he explained to me what impact the Asian future will have on democracy. It's got this great new book. It's out in a couple of weeks called The Future is Asian. I've heard that one before, Parag. So what's original about what you're saying? You've heard it before because you remember the Japan story, right? People talked about Japan and its economic miracle of the 60s and 70s. By the 80s and 90s, people were saying that Japan was suddenly going to alone become the Asian power that would dominate the world. And of course, that proved to be premature and wrong. So by virtue of analogy, people say, well, now, therefore, we were wrong about Japan. So China's turn, we're probably wrong about China. But that's exactly the point of the story, is that Asia is not just Japan, and it's not just China. It's Japan plus China, plus Korea, plus Southeast Asia, plus India. And you can't boil it down. And you even put Australia in it, right? And Australia is. What about Germany? Uh, No, Germany, not quite. That would be your Asia, actually. Um, But here's what people miss in the Asian story, is that we always reduce it to one country, and we make that country out to be a threat, right? A hegemonic threat. If you want to understand Asia on its own terms, you go back and you say, Japan was an economic miracle, and that economic miracle inspired South Korea, and Taiwan, and Hong Kong, and Singapore. And then all of those countries became the leading investors in China. China today wouldn't be what it is if it weren't for those other Asian countries before it that got rich and invested in it. And those are still the largest investors in China today. And now what's happening is that you have a whole set of countries from Pakistan, through India, through Southeast Asia, with two and a half billion people, which is a billion more people than China, by the way, whose growth rates are now equal, or in many cases, higher than China's, with younger populations. So for a lot of people, Asia is just China and anything China wants. In reality, Asia is 
three and a half billion people more than just China, and it's a much bigger story. So, okay, so it's a bigger story, but very, very briefly, in 30 seconds, define what Asia is, at least in the book. It's not just a geographical term because you're including New Zealand and Australia in it. Is it an idea? Is it a way of doing business? Is it a political system? Is it a race? Is it an ideology? It's a great question. It's a system. In international relations and political economy and in macroeconomics, we talk about a system, and a system is not just a way of thinking, right? It's actually a concrete way of measuring the relationships between units, between countries. Europe is a system, right? The European Union is a set of countries that deal more with each other than they do with the rest of the world. So here we are having this conversation in Europe. We often talk about Western civilization, transatlantic relationship. The Asian system is 5 billion people, 40-something countries, 40% of the world economy, right? They trade more with each other than they do with anyone else. So it's a network as a system, or is it a system in terms, because I know a lot of your work's about global interdependence. Mm -hmm. Is it a trading block, a cultural system, or is it a network? It's a network of civilizations, a network of economies. Again, they're trading more with each other. They're investing more with each other. They have so many characteristics that are almost the opposite of what we are talking about right now. Why is this called optimism and courage? Why is the theme? Because we feel that right now we live in a pessimistic age, right? Inward-looking, xenophobic, protectionist, all of those things. Well, for 5 billion people, they wouldn't characterize their lives as being like that. They're pro-globalization, pro-opening borders, pro-immigration, all of those things are the sentiments in Asia right now. We're not talking about that. Our point of departure in this conversation is almost the opposite of the reality of the majority of the world population, which lies in Asia. So it's very important to see the world from that point of view. Are you saying then you can't be optimistic and courageous in Europe? No, you can, and I think more people should be. One of the things but that... you're juxtaposing Asia and certainly the Anglo-American civilization, if that's the right word... Which so is just, different from Western civilization. So right? we in the UK and America with Trump and Brexit, we're the miserable ones and the Asians are cheerful. Is that what's going on? Right now, within Western civilization, which you could include all of North America, all of Europe, there's a particular pair of countries, the US and the UK, the Anglo-American axis. The bad boys. That are really screwing up. But here we are sitting in Germany, which does not belong in that same category. Canada is more like a continental European country in many ways than it is like the United States, right, in terms of the so way... So Canada and Germany really are Asian. <laughs> well, I didn't say that Germany's optimistic, because for better or worse, it isn't necessarily right yeah, now. Germany and optimism don't always go together. No, right? no, they don't. But I'll tell you what <laughs> is Germans important. Germans even laugh at that. Whether or not you're German, very important due respect to this country, to Germany. Germany is a very important role model for Asian countries. That's extremely important to remember. China today, and I've been saying this for more than a decade, China wants nothing more than to be a giant Germany. It wants to be heavily industrialized with a very large export trade surplus, to have world-class modern infrastructure, to have equity, social equity, and so forth. A lot of these things are German virtues, if you will, and China looks up to Germany, actually. In your book, you have a section at the end, in the political chapter, on technocracy. In political terms, is the Asian century, the century of technocracy? What you do find, and by the way, let me just point out that technocracy doesn't mean rule by elites. It doesn't mean that it's anti-democratic or non-democratic. Far more people in Asia live in democracies than live in authoritarian regimes. More people live in democracies in Asia than in the entire rest of the world. In the next six months, 
India, Indonesia, and the Philippines are having elections. 1.8 billion people are going into free and fair and open democratic elections just in Asia. Technocracy, therefore, is not the opposite of democracy. Technocracy means that there is a deference to political leadership that has a long-term vision, long-term plans, one that the population actually rallies behind, modernization, industrialization, education, infrastructure investment, and they give their trust to their leadership to implement those things. Do you know where the highest rates of trust in government are in the world? By the way, as you probably know, I don't need to tell you how low they are in the West, and that's whether it's the US and the UK or even continental Europe. We're talking about 20 to 25% rate of public trust and satisfaction in governments in the West. In Asian countries, it can be 80 to 90%. Okay, so let's get into that. So the country, I think, that comes to mind most readily in the definition of technocracy and trust is Singapore. But we in the West, and we're not just talking about sort of pissy Americans and British people, we are troubled, and I can speak we on behalf of every Western person. Because there's so much unity in the West. We are very troubled by what seems to be the absence of democracy in Singapore, by this idea of a kind of wise elite who passes down policy to the rest of the people. Is this what the Asian century is going to involve? The Asian century, like I say, involves right now, in this period of time, societies that trust their leadership. Again, that's a country that has a very high trust. But Estonia in trusts their leadership. It's not just in Asia. Maybe because they're not screwing up the way the UK leadership Does China is. trust their leadership? They do. I mean, to the extent that they you can do. measure it in a country like China, and to the extent, and of course, as you can imagine, it's not a country where people are not trying to figure out whether or not they trust their leadership, and whatever evidence we have suggests that they very much do. Whether you're talking about Asia or whether you're talking about the West, always examine a society based on where they're coming from, not compared in reference to yourself. When you're talking about China 40 years ago, a very poor country, a feudal agrarian society, emerging from a period of the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, as everyone knows, is well-documented, has lifted 600, 700 million people out of poverty. And because it's an aging society, do you expect them, just because it is an authoritarian country, do you expect the elderly people to revolt against that leadership that has lifted them out of poverty? Of course not. So coming from where they were, they do trust their government. It's done a lot for them. Would we want their society to have a different government? Yes. Do some of their own people want to have a different government where they have more voice? Of course they do. But they'll evolve towards it. They're not going to have it overnight. Well, you know, we're skirting around the issue, but the issue on front of many people's minds, both in in and outside Asia, is the Chinese model of sort of surveillance totalitarianism, where the state's collecting all the data of everyone in the country and rewarding the obedient ones and punishing those who aren't obedient. It's a kind of sophisticated Orwellianism. It makes 1984 look old-fashioned. Aren't you troubled by that? I know you're going to say, well, the Asian century isn't China, blah, blah, but it kind of is. Isn't that terrifying? Well, again, it isn't. The China model is for China. That's why we call it the China model. I'm a political scientist. I've spent 15, 20 years traveling around countries where I actually hear leaders say, oh, we're going to follow the China model. What they really mean is, please don't interfere in our kleptocratic politics, and we're not going to reform, we're not going to modernize, we're not going to lift anyone out of poverty, we're just hideously corrupt. That's not the China model, right? That's not what made China successful. So when we talk about the China model, let's be clear, it really is only China that acts the way China does. And so Chinese lives, of course, are affected. We can go right into the issue of the social credit system and mass surveillance. Does that terrify you? Do you find it totally chilling? I hope they're not watching, right? They are, actually. Uh, (laughs) 
you can take comfort in the fact in knowing that it will probably only work in China, even as they try to export these things, because in other countries, again, there are 2 billion people living in democracies in Asia. You're not going to be able to export social credit system or surveillance to those countries and suddenly turn them into authoritarian states. It's not going to happen. On the social credit thing, I think the deeper you look into it, the more one has to realize that it is as much as an experiment as it is some kind of a blanket imposition. And there are benefits to what they're trying to do. For example, if someone is a perennial red light crosser and driving people over, that person's license plate is going to be photographed and they'll never get to drive again. And we should approve of that? No, what I'm saying is that if you are a country of 1.5 billion people and you have 50 companies who taint baby formula and kill children, those companies are going to be put out of business tomorrow as a result and children won't get killed. On the downside, of course, if you tweet or put something on, you can't tweet. Well, actually, this is a good example. If you do tweet, they're going to put you in jail, right? The Asian century, right? No, it's the Chinese model for China, right? And that's the difference. And here's the important thing about the effect that it has. In liberal societies, which is a lot of Asian countries, they look at that and say, we actually don't want that. A lot of countries aren't looking at China and saying, well, they're powerful and they've got this surveillance technology. We want to be run by that kind of leadership. They're saying the exact opposite, which is, by the way, the central message of this book. Is it possible to argue, though, that the 21st century be the Asian century in the sense that the really interesting clash this century is going to be between the will of the Chinese Communist Party and the will of the Chinese people? that this is the real struggle and that the Chinese people will turn around and say, for all the benefits of efficiency and technocracy, we don't want to live in a totalitarian system. I think that we've been waiting 28 years since the Tiananmen Square uprising for that to be the case, and it has proven not to be the case. So it isn't so much that there is some hidden, buried civil war that is about to emerge in the country. That's not something that anyone sees any meaningful evidence of. So I don't think that's the conversation. Okay, so that's not the conversation. We're ending now. We're going to get that beeper at the end. Give me one anecdote, one country, one personality, one idea that summarizes the Asian century? The Asian century is about the revitalization of the ancient Silk Roads, right? If you go back 2,000 years, 1,000 years, 500 years, before any of us obviously were alive, before any time that we can remember, Asia had an Asian-ness. The Silk Roads dominated. Most of the world's population was connected to each other. But then came two phases of history, colonialism and the Cold War. 500 years of colonialism in the Cold War, and Asia was fragmented. And Asia's recovering that unity that it had for many centuries, and it's become this system again. It's really not a process that's going to be stopped. It's actually very good for the world. Perfect. Thank you, Parag. You need to read the book. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. 
We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. We are expecting 1,200 attendees from around the world and 180 international speakers. To see who is coming to DLD Munich, visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. The theme of this year's DLD conference was optimism and courage. And so, if Parakana is indeed right about the future being Asian, shouldn't that also make us optimistic about the future of democracy? Yes and no. Undoubtedly, his notion of Asia as an interdependent system, a kind of reinvented Silk Roads for the digital 21st century, offers much potential for democracy. So, for example, transcontinental trade, a transparent web of economic interaction, offers an essential foundation for a thriving ecosystem of Asian democracies. Secondly, Kana is correct to focus on the high level of trust which most Asians, from Singapore to India to Malaysia, regard their government. In contrast, democracies in crisis in the West, particularly in the UK and the US, because of the historic low levels of public trust for elected politicians. Then there's the T word, technocracy, or the rule of experts. Karna argues that, quote, technocracy isn't the opposite of democracy, unquote. And I guess he's right in some ways, but I'm a little troubled by his uncritical embrace of technocracy. So, for example, he glosses over the undemocratic nature of Asia's most successful technocratic government, Singapore, with its one-party rule and active discrimination against dissenting voices. No, Singapore isn't China, but nor is it a liberal democracy which prioritizes individual rights, privacy, and toleration. And then, of course, there's China. Kana very explicitly rejects the conflation of the Asian century with the Chinese century. He also reminds us that China won't be able to export its deeply undemocratic social credit system to the rest of Asia. And yet, for all that, I wonder if Kana is a tad soft on China, particularly in the uncritical credit that he gives the country's Communist Party government for China's economic miracle. There's a lot of healthy optimism in Kana's take on China, but much less discussion on courage. He seems to suggest that the Chinese people are content with their unwritten social contract with their government, a deal that trades prosperity and order for an authoritarian political system. I hope he's wrong. I still want to believe in the courage of the Chinese people. And as I suggested to him, I think that this historic standoff between Chinese citizens demanding democratic rights and their authoritarian government will ultimately be the reason why the future is indeed Asian. Next week, we return to the crisis of Western democracy. Our guest is Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator for the Financial Times newspaper and one of the world's most acclaimed journalists. The irrepressible wolf 
will not only lay out what's wrong with Western democracy, but it'll also explain how to fix it. I look forward to talking with you then.